Welcome to the STFM Podcast, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. In this podcast, we speak to leaders in academic family medicine about a variety of leadership topics. And now your host, Dr. Saria Carter-Sicosia. Welcome, Dr. Frank Clark, for joining us today on our STFM Podcast. Dr. Clark, thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. And I would just love to start with hearing about you. Can you share with our audience today how you became who you are today as, as Frank, as Dr. Clark, and what you do to motivate yourself in this challenging world that we live in and what we've most recently experienced? Well, thank you, Dr. Sakosha. I really appreciate you having me on as part of this podcast, and I thank you for the work that you're doing. So excited to be here. But um, yes, I'm um, Frank Clark. I'm originally from the south side of Chicago, so I um, spent the majority of my life in Chicago, probably until my mid-20s, and then did medical school at Northwestern University in Chicago, and then headed south for a change of pace and new scenery. So um, I after I graduated from medical school, did my residency in psychiatry at what used to be Palmetto Richland Hospital. It's now Prisma uh, Midlands and did a adult uh, psychiatry residency for four years. And then after that, made another move, uh, which has kind of been the story of my life. I've, I've moved a lot of places um, throughout my journey, but that's um, that, that's been great. And so one of the uh, silver linings of moving to Virginia is when I met my um, my better half, uh, my wife, uh, Dr. Jennifer Clark, who we've been married now going on, uh, coming up on six years, and we have a beautiful daughter named Claire, um, who we adore. And so it's been um, another transition, a new season in terms of um, parenthood. And currently, um, I practice um, as an inpatient psychiatrist at um, Prisma Health uh, Upstate in, in Greenville, South Carolina, and um, serve as the medical director and division chief for um, adult inpatient services and consult liaison services at Prisma Health. I've been in that role now for about four years, and it's been an exciting time um, in terms of being able to have an impact not only in the lives of my patients, but for them also to have an impact on me. And in addition, practicing medicine uh, and serving my brothers and sisters on the inpatient unit, I run a teaching service, which consists of multiple uh, learners from various different um, disciplines. And that includes uh, our residents um, and um, who are going to be psychiatrists after they finish their residency, as well as medical students at the uh, University of South Carolina School of Medicine, Greenville. So in my spare time, I... um, enjoy spending time with family. Um, very, um, We're very involved in our church here um, in Greenville, South Carolina, and love to travel. I'm a huge sports fan. So being from Chicago, um, I got a chance to uh, grow up with the uh, Chicago Bulls when Michael Jordan was playing. So um, I, I, I enjoy uh, playing sports and watching sports. And um, I love um, tuning into my um, or being in tune with my creative side. So I have a um, background in um, the fine arts, uh, which includes um dance and music, and I uh, write a lot of poetry, so that helps keep me um, balanced. Okay, so it sounds to me as if your cup runneth over, Frank. I don't know how you balance it all, uh, but certainly it, it sounds like your life is very rich, and there are so many pieces to Dr. Clark and what makes you who you are and how not only you serve your patients 
and your colleagues, but being familiar with some of your literary pieces, you refer to your poetry. Um, I've come to be more familiar with your work and your passion in social justice, in some of the challenges we've had recently, whether it's trauma or workplace violence in, in this broad range in the middle. So as both a psychiatrist and an author, what pieces do you find encouraging and how do you find ways or channels that are open to your expression in both medicine and in society? That's a good question. You know, I think that you mentioned we've just gone through so much this past year with the racial injustices that continue to, um, that have been pervasive throughout our um, our country and our world. The COVID pandemic, which um, has taken emotional toll on us, um, workplace violence, which can be in the form of microaggressions or discrimination in many forms, uh, whether it be related to race, gender, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, et cetera. I think everybody has to find their uh, their niche and how they go about addressing those issues or addressing adversity, I think is the best way to how I would characterize it. And so for me, I um, I protest through the pen is, is the best way I can describe that. One of my friends and colleagues mentioned the other day, let thy pen be thy weapon, so to speak. And that really spoke to me um, because I share a lot of poetry with her um, and, and my other colleagues, as you've mentioned, you've read some of my things. And so when all the things were happening this past year with um, uh, the the modern day lynching of George Floyd and COVID and just so many other things that led to heartache and the emotional toil on our our country, I I had to do some soul searching. I had to do a lot of reflection and I was angry, you know, kind of going through that, you know, those stages of grief that we talk about, uh, the denial, the anger, the bargaining, the acceptance. And I... I started writing probably back in medical school uh, when I actually went through my own depression. And that's when I found out I kind of wrote some of my some of my best work, I thought, at the time. And I kind of laid the pen down a little bit. I would still have these creative things that I wanted to do, but I, I kind of, I think it, my, my creativity kind of laid dormant in some ways. And one of the things that my therapist and I have always talked about is that what are the silver linings that you can find throughout the adversity that um, we may be experiencing? And for me, COVID, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many others, the the political divide, the pen um, gave me the encouragement and the um, allowed me to be creative and to protest in a lot of ways uh, and to share my my thoughts and my reflections on what has happened in our country. And so I think that can be applied to everyday life. It doesn't take a pandemic or the killings of Black men and women or the political division that uh, remains in our country to find what fills our love bank and what's going to give us a sense of peace. I think we need to do that every day in order to stay well. You know, again, it's different strokes for different folks. For me, my pen is is my weapon in a good way, so to speak. Uh, my pen is my, I'll say my antidepressant um, in, in a lot of ways. It, it allows me, um, that in exercise, it allows me to stay whole. And so I, I would encourage our, our listeners that to find, find your weapon and utilize it in a healthy way that not only fills you up, but has the opportunity to fill others. Um, one of the things that I feel is that, you know, sometimes we don't realize how much of a blessing 
we can be to others. You know, we, we do a lot of things for our, you know, we're, we're so, we're so selfless as, as, as human beings and especially in medicine, as you know, um, you know, and, and, and being a physician includes being a teacher and a healer. And we're so into the business of healing others. We forget that the physician has to heal thyself and what better way to tap into those creative juices to allow ourselves to be filled and to be whole and to be re, uh, re rejuvenated. I heard so many great points of wisdom in what you just shared, Frank, and, and thank you. Thank you for being so vulnerable with our audience today and transparent with your own personal journey. And I think that's so important for us all to grow and understand we're human. We talk about the blessings, but if we do not heal thyself, then it makes it difficult, if not impossible, to heal others at the same time. And and the sense of peace that you speak of through finding your weapon. I think that's a beautiful statement in considering how you have been successful in writing your own silver lining, if you will. Um, your pen, I keep going back to that. And you, you even said the, the pen is your antidepressant. And I'm familiar with the works of writing out three good things. And that may be something you're familiar with too, and it just clicked for me when you're writing, you are reiterating what's in your head and you can really drive that work and be in control of where those thoughts take you. They can take us to a dark place, but they can also lead us to um, epiphanies and acceptance and resolution. And again, back to that sense of peace. What a beautiful story you just shared. And um uh, another point that you make is about the stages of grief and how we're all processing. And grief is in many forms. Uh, before we even get to loss, it can be from trauma, the microaggressions that we personally experience or we observe others experiencing all the way to violence. And so I want to dig a little deeper into that conversation and the spectrum of violent examples, whether they're verbal or physical and whatever's in between. I, I'm just curious if you've had any of these personal experiences or what suggestions and or what are your suggestions for physicians and other learners as we're navigating this world that is becoming more prevalent and more constant? That's a very good question. You know, so to, um, to address the first part of your question, I have had personal experiences with um, discrimination in the form of microaggressions. And when those things happen, no matter, uh, I just turned 40 a couple months ago, you know, and I, I remember my first uh, encounter well, I remember coming home. I was in daycare, I guess. My mom told me this one. Um, um, growing up, I, I guess I came home from daycare one day and um, I said, you know, mom, someone called me the N-word. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. And, um, you know, and thinking back that I was just a kid and the fact that we're still in 2021 and we are still um, having to be the recipients of discrimination um, in many different dimensions and, and microaggressions, uh, it does take an emotional toll, not just on the mind, but also the body. And I, I think when these things happen, it's easy sometimes, I think, to become desensitized and also to suppress things because one, you're just kind of like, oh, well, maybe that didn't really happen. That person really didn't 
mean what what they said or and and so you're almost kind of in a state of shock but then you have to kind of snap out of it and be like well no your feelings are valid all of us have valid feelings um and so we have to own that we have to say okay this happened and this did not make me feel good and no matter how over you know over the years i think we gain more wisdom as we as we grow older but even with more wisdom you know can still you can still experience these these type of traumas whether they be uh, micro traumas or macro traumas or microaggressions, macroaggressions, you know, they, they still stink. And, you know, Dr. Uh, Chester Pierce, who um, the late Chester, Dr. Chester Pierce is, uh, he's the one who coined the term microaggressions. And he um, passed away a, a couple of years ago, but, you know, he, he described them as kind of uh, subtle, stunning, uh, often automatic, nonverbal exchanges that would occur uh, between individuals. And at the time he uh, was talking about black and white individuals and what was going on the Jim Crow area, uh, era, excuse me. And then you had Dr. Delray uh, Sue come along, who expanded upon that definition and included micro, uh, defined microaggressions as also having verbal exchanges. And he added um, other affinity groups, uh, minority groups, we're talking about LGBTQ population, uh, women, um, individuals with um, disabilities. And so when I've experienced microaggressions or uh, other forms of discrimination or bullying, so to speak, you know, I have to take a step back and say, okay, um, what am I going to do to address this? And how do I address this? Um, I think is, is important because as much as we would like to think that bullying or um, violence only occurs in our child and adolescent years, it doesn't. Um, it can follow, it can, it's, um, its trajectory can, it's not a good one, especially in the workplace. And I think a lot of times people don't think that bullying exists. And it doesn't have to be what we classify as the typical bully. You know, if you've been passed for a promotion because of your skin color or your gen, uh, or your uh, sexual orientation, gender, what have you, I would say that that's a form of bullying or, right, you know, um, the discrimination. If you notice that your male colleagues are getting a, um, a higher pay than, than you are, we talk about the gender um, wealth gap in, in the workplace. We talk about the racial disparity gap and, and, and racial wealth gap. Those are things that um, we, we, we don't really think about as uh, forms of discrimination, but they, they are. And, and we have to pay attention to those. I think in terms of navigating those channels, whether it, be, whether it relates to discrimination or, other, or, or various forms of discrimination, yeah, I think it's important to find us one, to have a safe space to talk about. And who do you do that with is, is the question I always have to ask myself because um, not everybody who we work with, no matter what healthcare system or what, what environment, work environment that you're in, you're not going to trust everybody that you work with. And that doesn't mean that you don't like that person. It's just that we're very mindful of what we share and who we shared with. And so whenever I experience or um, I have colleagues who have experienced some of the things that I experienced, I have a couple of mentors that I will call. Some may be at my workplace, some may be outside of my workplace. And for me, it's about what's going to make me come. Can I approach that person that my ally, so to speak, my, you know, my confidant and know that this is going to stay in a safe space. Because if no, if we don't feel safe, we're not going to open up. If you think about trauma, just in general, you know, we always, um, unfortunately, our, our society is not really kind to individuals who've experienced trauma. I see this every day in my practice on the inpatient unit with men and women who um, have PTSD, who have been sexually and emotionally and mentally abused. And it's 
well, how come you never told anybody? Well, a little easier said than done, right? There is a lot of times a fear factor because if that person did tell that person, they they may have, the perpetrator may have said, I'm going to kill your family or threaten them, right? So we have to put ourselves in the other person's shoes. Like, I think sometimes we're very quick to judge, you know, it's like, well, I would never do that. Or I would have just, well, we don't know what we would have done until we're, in, we're faced with that situation. And so I think we have to be kind to ourselves. We have to show ourselves grace and say, what happened to me is not okay. And I acknowledge it. I acknowledge that this is not my fault, that I am not the, that what I'm experiencing is real. What I'm experiencing is valid. If we validate ourselves, that's the first piece. Because sometimes when we look for validation from others, we may not receive it because for a number of reasons, right? There's a hierarchy in the workplace. And depending on who your boss is, who's in leadership, they may be your ally or they could be the bully. And so how do you navigate that, that, that food chain, so to speak? Who's at the top and who's at the bottom? And so obviously it shouldn't be that way, but this is where systems have a role in having what I call as a, what we know as a zero tolerance policy. No matter what leadership role you're in, whether you're at the bottom, so to speak, of the food chain or at the top, there should be a zero tolerance policy for workplace violence and discrimination, period. Amen. Zero tolerance. And I I am with you on that point. And you simply being a man and me being a woman, uh, you being black and me being white, there have been different experiences. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about my own personal experiences with microaggressions or perhaps more direct But something you said intrigued me. It was an aha moment for me just a moment ago when you were comparing microaggressions, both verbal and nonverbal, with bullying. And now processing that comparison, I recognize the similarities. And sometimes I feel as if the term microaggressions, people downplay it. As you said, it's subtle, but what you said was that it's both subtle yet stunning. And I can't believe that's just happened. And I think about the number of times I've personally been gaslighted or felt to believe perhaps I'm overreacting or to the point where I assume I might overreact if I say something or if I felt something, especially earlier on in my career, in my life. And just what you're saying about acknowledgement and validation, I think that's so important. Having a safe space. Um, I thought about what you said comparing um, who you go to. It's got to be someone you trust. This is such a sensitive and vulnerable space. And so for that reason, I'd be curious, what do you think about this space? Um, Because you mentioned mentors specifically. And sometimes we talk about our best friend at work and there are things we share with our best friend. However, I'd like to get your thoughts on the best friend versus the mentor, and maybe they both work. But I also think about personal experiences I've had where perhaps I was venting because venting can be different or the same of getting it out and expressing yourself because I've been in situations where my, my feelings um, have escalated and the anger and the rage grows versus processing, acknowledging, validating. How do you keep from going too far in the negative direction, but also accepting it for what it is and and how you handle this. What what do you think in the mentor versus the best friend at work? 
That's a good question. As I reflect on that question, it's um, the, you're definitely right. The the pendulum can swing a little bit too far to the right sometimes, or a little bit too far for the, to the left. And you know, sometimes our best friends can be our mentors. They can serve in the same capacity, but it could get a little hairy, so to speak, because especially at work, you know, you're you're venting, and I can't remember who said this to me, but um, you have 15 minutes to to be angry. And after that, then I guess you look at more of a solution-focused approach. But 15 minutes, that's all you get is 15 minutes to ventilate your frustrations. And then after that, it's, okay, what am I going to do about that? The friend-mentor diet or role, it's, I, I think that you can have both because I've had both. Um, you know, I've had friends in my departments where I've worked at here and, and other places where, you know, I'm just like, sometimes I just need to... I just need to vet. And and then I feel better. I might not even take any more action after that. It's just that I just need I don't need you really to say much. I just need you to listen. And and then what I find after that, after that happens, then um, my friend will um, uh, flip the script, so to speak, and reciprocate in and actually vent to, to me because I, I think there's um, timing is impeccable at, at, at times because you are what you may be going through, somebody that 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 friend probably may need to hear because they may be they may have experienced something just maybe that day or a couple of weeks ago. And I think it's something to be said when kindred spirits are are together in that space. And so that may be in some ways a blessing for both parties involved. And then, you know, maybe you take that conversation outside of the work setting, because I think sometimes we get so much in our feelings and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think sometimes the best friend can be biased in some ways. And we all have our biases. You know, I'm, you know, if I tell my wife something, she's going to have her own biases. Um, she supports me. She cares about me. Vice versa. I'm going to have my own biases. But if I go talk to my therapist who has an unbiased opinion, there's a different thing. Same thing with the mentors. So I, what I will do sometimes is do both. I will have, um, I'll have the best friend that I talk to. Um, but then I'll also have the mentor who may not be my best friend, but serves in that in such a different world where world where I get a different perspective, and I think it's good to have the friend perspective who could also be a mentor. But oftentimes, our friends are not always our mentors, and our mentors are not always our friends. Now, with that being said, some of my mentors over the years have become some of my good friends, and some just stay as mentors. And I think there's a season. Um, someone once sent me an email that people come into your life for a reason, a season, or a lifetime, and I I firmly believe that. So I think it's I don't think it's really an and or or a can you can you navigate both? You can. I just think it's important for the person to be to be mindful of what is it that you want that person to uh, not necessarily do, but what role do you want that person to have when you're coming to vent ventilate your feelings and your frustrations. And so I think it's having expectations not only for yourself, but the expectations for the best friend or for the mentor. You know, I think you and I are both um, married and stuff. You know, sometimes I try to solve my wife's problems and stuff and she doesn't want that. She just wants me to listen. Right. So I've learned that over the years, but I still have a lot more to, to learn. So there is I think it's the same thing with the mentor best friend. Are you coming to the best friend because you just want to have that 15 minutes of I don't want you to say anything. I just need to get this out. And that's good. And then you go to your mentor and say, okay, I've had my venting session with my best friend. 
I'm coming to you with the hope of developing some solutions because this has been pervasive and I want to know how do I approach the leaders in my department, for example, of how I can best navigate this and to minimize the risk of this happening again. Well, and I think simply stated from your words is having a shared safe space and get your anger out of the way in 15 minutes. If not, at least that's an opportunity for a moment of self-awareness, because if that anger is lasting, probably need more processing or, or, or really to be thinking, what is it about this situation that still has me angry? And, and so let's let's um, shift gears a little bit then. Let, let's talk about those situations where tension rises in workplaces. Now more than ever before, we're hearing of workplace violence or trauma that may not happen at work, but there are situations where it comes out in different ways in the office. Uh, have you ever been in a situation in the workplace where there is violence, whether it's from a patient or from a colleague at work? And what would you tell others that are processing or afraid of an event like that at work? What do you say? Because it, it, sometimes I go home to my own husband and say, there's a situation at work or I wouldn't be surprised if this person came to work with a gun one day. Yeah, that's, um, unfortunately, I wish we didn't even have to talk about this, um, but it is, a, it is a reality, a harsh reality. So I have never experienced violence um, at the hands of um, my colleagues. Uh, I've, been, I've been thankful in that sense. I think when it comes to patient care, I've never been physically assaulted, uh, verbally assaulted, yes. And that has come in the form of racially charged language that has been used towards me. And that that stings. Um, I remember uh, a patient using um, uh, the word, the N-word. Remember that when I was practicing in Virginia. And I, I think that it's... It can be difficult, you know, honestly, I think, and, and when I say this, I think it's not easier, but in some ways, I think having a patient um, be verbally assaultive is, I can stomach that a little bit better than if it were a colleague. Now, when I say that, I also am looking at a patient population that, you know, I work with individuals who are, have their own trauma, have, are floridly psychotic or are coming in depressed, and that doesn't excuse the language, but I think I am able to show them more grace as opposed to one of my colleagues. With that being said, I think when bullying or workplace violence happens, whether it be at the hands of uh, whether it be the perpetrators be our patients or uh, our leaders in a, in a department or uh, our colleagues, there's always two sides to the coin. And so as I'm saying that I'm able probably to show more grace to my patients, then I have to ask myself, well, am I not more willing to, to show grace to my colleagues? And grace is something that is that we all are in need of um, every day, mercy and grace and patience and humility. What I find in that workplace violence setting, the people who are, who are the perpetrators are likely going through something themselves. And I think we often forget about that. Again, that doesn't excuse the behavior, but have we asked the person, not, and we may not feel comfortable, especially if they're assaulting us to ask, but, but 
I sometimes think about this as I'll use a good uh, I'll use an example that I think everybody can um, can get on board with. So we all go to the grocery store, we all go to the mall, or you know we all buy things. So um, so we you know the cashier is a good example. You go up to the cashier. And we have all gotten testy with people and, and, and the cashier, you know, tells us that, you know, we say, well, this is supposed to be discounted. I'm supposed to get 25% off on this item and stuff. I see and the cashier says, well, that's actually, I'm sorry, that's not true um, based on this and that. And I've talked to my manager and we say, well, the customer is always right. Okay. And then we protest to the point where we escalate things. Well, who is your manager? Let me talk to them. And in some ways, we're kind of being the bully in that sense. But did we ever stop to think about the cashier? Maybe they've had a bad day. And if they're being snippy with us, does it excuse, does it excuse what they're doing? But have we decided, have we ever decided to take a step back and pe- people at groceries who work at grocery stores have a difficult job? Cashiers get, you know, every day they're, <laughs> you know, they're, they're trying to do their best. They're trying to put on a smile. They're, 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 they're trying to meet the needs of, of the community that is coming in to buy produce and other things from their store. Telemarketers are another good example of that. How many times do, you know, telemarketers call? And, you know, they're, they're just trying to do their job. And so I guess I, a reason I give these examples is that, you know, even though someone may be snippy with us or get a little, you know, testy and, and be assaultive, maybe verbally, uh, emotionally, physically, my first question is, okay, well, my first thought is I don't like this. Um, this doesn't feel good, but something is going on with that person. We know that bullies often have been bullied. So knowing that doesn't mean that we don't get angry and, don't, and we're not upset and, and things like that. But what are we doing to help the person who is bullying? What is being done there? So right, we have to address it. But my, my other question would be, how, how, you know, if I'm the leader, right? Because you're coming, that person, you're, if we're the victim of bullying, we're going to be coming to our superior, our boss. And so I'm sharing this information with you as a FYI, because this is impacting my health. Furthermore, I'm also concerned about the person that is the perpetrator, but we don't always do that. We are in some ways selfish, right? We, we say, these are my needs and my needs need to be met because I can't function in a toxic environment, which is valid. But then we should add the and and I don't know what's going on with so-and-so, but I'm also worried about this person because I have a, a, a suspicion that the person who has been bullying me is probably being bullied themselves or something is not going on at home or something is going on at work. And I just want to bring that to your attention because as much as I am not liking the behavior of this person, I still care about this person as a human being. So the take-home point, if we can respect each other, if we, if we respect humanity and we have humility for one another, then both sides win. And if both sides win, then that makes the environment less toxic. And then you have other people that may have it, be experiencing these things being more confident and more willing to step forward. But it's all about how we approach things with each other. And I think we have to think outside of ourselves and think about the other person. And we often don't do that, myself included. That was so brilliant and so humble. 
in what you just said. And, and I wrote down that if we respect humanity and possess humility, then that's how we can manage the potential for escalation. And grace, I, th- I think grace is the word for the day. And, and grace is seen so many ways. And, and just hearing you speak today, Dr. Clark, and listening to your personal experiences, first of all, it took me back to the days of when I bagged groceries and when I was a cashier at Kmart and some of those experiences that you shared. Uh, wow. Talk about challenges, but remembering to give grace, not to be walked on, because that's important. And you said that. You need to call it out for what it is and hold people accountable for their behavior. But I think back in, for example, the times that I might be frustrated on the road. When, when I was frustrated on the road, it was typically because I was running late, which means I was frustrated because I wasn't going to get to where I needed to get on time because of decisions that I made that made me late. And now I'm, I am externalizing or blaming someone for my own challenges and my own personal situation. Thank you for that psychiatric moment and processing. And, and you can send me a bill for my copay for that. But, You're charged to friends. You know, so. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but being kind, let's remember at the end of the day, kindness matters. And I'm going to say it again because you said it just so beautifully. When we respect humanity and we represent humility. We give grace to not only others, but also to ourselves. So thank you for this. Thank you for this piece. This is just um, so helpful. And I believe that our audience is really going to be taking this away with them for the day and just remembering, just take a breath. If we all just took a breath and remembered, we're all dealing with our own baggage. And that self-awareness is critical every day, because it's when it catches you off guard that oftentimes we misbehave that first 15 minutes, but then we need to move on. Well, so speaking of moving on, I have one final question for you and knowing that you are passionate about academics and teaching our learners about how to be better physicians and better colleagues and handling these situations with grace and kindness. What are your thoughts on current academic curriculum in institutions? Should this be more of an organic conversation? Should this be more intentional and part of right after your um, physiology or histology classes, you have a class on handling microaggressions to trauma? Yes. So I am passionate about this and, and passionate about um, teaching and, and and also knowledge. I mean, we talk about knowledge as power. I definitely think that this, we do need to be intentional about what our future leaders are learning um, in the classroom. As you know, uh, medical school curriculum is definitely different than when you and I were in medical school. And that's a good thing. Change needs to happen in terms of not only what we're teaching to our students, but also how we're teaching it. And, you know, it's, I have these conversations often with medical students and actually just had a conversation with one of my mentees before um, uh, the podcast today. And she was asking me about what opportunities do you think that medical students miss out on during their, um, 
during their medical school career. And I, and I it, it took me by surprise because uh, she's a she's going to be a rock star, and I can't wait to see her flourish in this in this new environment here. But if I were to answer that question again, I would say that the thing that I think students and learners of, of in various environments miss out on is the concept and the ability to have self-compassion. And I've said that throughout my my life because um, I've struggled with that. Um, I, I think that we are we are so hard on ourselves when we get bullied, when there is violence um, in the workplace, when there, when we experience microaggressions and discriminations from different, for different reasons. Again, we're, we forget what it means to have self-compassion. And sometimes that's hard when, when you have multiple traumas that eventually, you know, Dr. Chester Pierce talked about that uh, microaggressions can be so stunning and so automatic that they actually flatten self-confidence. And that in itself is powerful, right? Flattening self-confidence, right? So I kind of think about that as like letting the air out of the tires. It's like somebody, you have a whole bunch of nails in that car tire and after a while, it just, it just continues to deflate and there's nothing left. Or another way to think about it is that gauge, our gauge in that car just kind of stays on E instead of being able to fill up. But we have to teach that concept of self-compassion. We are, as one of uh, a speaker I heard once at a retreat, um, once said that we are perfectly imperfect. And when we recognize that and we recognize that we are flawed, but we are still authentic, we can still be our authentic selves and be flawed because that's, that's the beautiful thing about life. We grow and we learn. And so what I would encourage our listeners is to have the the cognitive flexibility, so to speak, and the mental agility and the self-compassion to say, hey, let's talk about these things. Let's have process groups. You know, imagine if after every test um, that our medical students take, if they had a process group or after every rotation during their third and fourth year, they had a process group and they could just process in a safe space no attendings present, no resident uh, residents present, just students. And I would say the same thing for residents. And I would say the same thing for you and I as faculty members, right? Forming process groups, right? Where you have diversity of thought, you have diversity of experience and you just, you know, you're just being you, your authentic self. You take the titles off. It's just Frank and Saria and others and you just talk. And there is where the rubber meets the road. That's where you get the richness of humanity. Imagine what health systems could look like. Imagine what medical schools could look like. Imagine what grocery stores and malls and, and the health uh, and the restaurant industry and the entertainment industry and the um, sports industry could look like if we could just not be defined by our identity, but be defined by who we are. And that is our first and last name and what we, um, what we put into the world. You know, we are more than just physicians, right? And so when this is happening in the workplace and in, in medical schools and things are happening, we have to, we have to be intentional about it. it we, we can't stay silent with these, with these issues because if we stay silent and complicit, then it's just going to perpetuate the status quo. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm tired of, this, of the status quo. I, I, I want workplace violence to be an anomaly. I want microaggressions and racism and and division of any uh, every any division that we can think of to be an anomaly. But how do we get there? 
It's not going to start at the top necessarily. I mean, I do think it needs to have, you know, some, some roots there, but we have to do this at a grassroots level, right? The, the organizations have to be, you know, on board and the leaders of our respective departments have to be on board, but we can do this if we just listen. Well, I want to sign up for your process group. I, I think that is an extraordinary and connected way to offer the opportunity for everyone to exhibit self-compassion and listening and the, the diversity of thought and experience in one group and, and to have that structure built into our workplaces and in our academic institutions in ways for people to connect. Uh, you speak about your family. I have spoken about some of my personal experiences and what I'm hearing is similar is we have people we connect with. You talk about mentors. We talk about best friends at work. Not everybody has a best friend at work. Not everyone has found a mentor that they trust, but the development of process groups, this almost sounds like an evolution of balance groups. If you remember those, I think they came out maybe when I was in training, perhaps a few years before. But it sounds like we need to brush off that concept and bring it back with a new perspective. I love it. And I love the idea of self-compassion. And I hear that as a common theme through our podcast as being kind to yourself first and taking a moment to rejuvenate yourself. Um, Being perfectly imperfect is and should be embraced. Um, This has just been a fantastic podcast. Thank you for for being real and transparent and, and sharing some of your innermost thoughts. And I encourage our listeners to seek out Dr. Frank Clark and some of his writings and the ways he has just incredibly expressed himself. Um, I have found ways to connect. I know others have um, as well. Uh, thank you, Dr. Clark, for joining us today. We so appreciate your time and your wisdom for our STFM podcast. Well, thank you again, Dr. Sagosha. I appreciate you, appreciate your friendship and um, for the invitation. And thank you again for what you're doing for our health system and for our patients. it's, um, It's worthy of praise. You've been listening to the SDFM podcast, produced by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. Visit us at sdfm.org and follow us on Twitter at stfm underscore fm. This podcast is copyright Society of Teachers of Family Medicine 2021.